The Apostle John walked closely with Jesus during all of his earthly ministry. He was used of God to give us a remarkable, intimate, powerful account of the ministry of Jesus. The Gospel of John was written so that we may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. John composed his Gospel to provide reasons of saving faith proclaiming that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and offers the gift of salvation. He declares these things are written so that you may believe. Turn in your Bible, if you will, to, well, the last two paragraphs of the Gospel of John. We finished this Gospel this morning. We, um, we're still in the moment, if you were with us last week, Jesus has risen from the grave some days before. The disciples, uh, still somewhat in anticipation, we learn in Acts chapter one, still a lot of questions about, about the kingdom. And even the, the, the now part of it, they're still asking that question in Acts chapter one, so they're certainly still asking that question in John 21, but in some frustration, perhaps, Peter has announced in, in chapter 21, verse 3, I'm going fishing. And as we learned last week, that was not simply Peter saying, I think what I'll do this morning is go fishing. It was in that moment, sort of, well, the Jesus thing is, seems to have sort of come and gone. So I think I'll just go back to fishing. That was not what the Lord had planned for Simon Peter and that conversation that began on the beach that we, uh, we began to study last week lays some groundwork for that. As we finish the Gospel of John, it's, it's not by accident that, that John ends his Gospel on the theme of trusting Jesus. And as I said at the top of your outline, the heart of knowing Jesus is our requirement to follow him. And following requires trust. Perhaps the most harrowing following I ever did. It was about the year 2000 that I was, I was uh, leading a, a mission team that had gone from the church that I was then serving to, to central Italy. And we had, done, we had done a lot of work in small towns surrounding Italy, but the time had come for us to visit the heart of Rome. We were in a, a couple of rented vehicles. And the missionary was kind of from there, so he, he knew his way around. And he knew how to do the, the driving, and he knew where there was a, a parking lot he wanted us to make it to. And the problem is that parking lot was in the heart of Rome. Now, I've, uh, I've never lived in a really large city, but I've driven in a number of them, and, and, and with all kindness, can we agree with each other that people who drive routinely in very large cities, well, they, 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 they drive a little different? Are we okay admitting that to each other? Okay. All right, add to that, for those of you who have, who have had the, the privilege of doing some traveling, the people who drive in European cities. Okay, I hear some knowing giggles going on. They drive a little bit different than a little bit different. 
And with great respect to everybody's ethnic heritage, Italians in a major city in Europe drive really, really, really different. The missionary said to me, as we come into Rome, you need to stay on my bumper like there's a three-foot chain connecting my rear bumper to your front bumper. Because if you lose me, you will never be seen again. <laughs> Follow me. I succeeded, by the way. It was, it was rough because there were times when this is not the way I would do this maneuver. There were other times when this is not the speed that I would go under these conditions. And there were times when I am painfully reminded I have no idea where I am, let alone where I'm headed. Other than I suppose on a globe, I could have pointed to Rome and said I'm there. I learned this about following. When you're following, you're not in control of the speed. You're not in control of where the turns come and you're not in control of the destination. For the follower, you're not responsible to know and determine the speed. You're responsible to follow. You're not responsible to determine where the next intersection is and what way it'll go. You're responsible to follow. You're not responsible for the ultimate destination. You're responsible to follow. Throughout all four Gospels, Jesus' favorite single word description of what it was to come to know him and then to continue in that relationship, his favorite single word used to describe that recurs over and over again in all four Gospels. Follow. Follow. You won't always know the speed. You will not determine all the turns. And I know where we're going way better than you do. Follow. So as we look at the theme this morning of trusting Jesus, it's that we would better follow. Three things in these two paragraphs and in a sort of a, a conversation Jesus is going to have with Simon Peter and ultimately John himself, the author of the gospel, will get involved in the conversation as well. Three ways that I see that we ought to trust Jesus. Number one, we need to trust Jesus with my failures. We need to trust Jesus with our failures. This first section, verses 15 through 17, let me read it to you. When they had finished breakfast, that is that meal of freshly caught fish on that charcoal fire there on the shore of the Sea of Galilee, when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, 
You know everything you know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Now there's a lot of of word play going on in that dialogue that's not necessarily evident in our our English. There are two different words for for, for love that are being used. I'm not, gonna, I'm not gonna run that linguistics down this morning, uh, but if you're a podcast listener, this week on Beyond the Notes, I'm gonna take a deeper dive into some of the specific ways language is being used in this conversation. For this morning, suffice to say, there's a lot going on there. And what Jesus is doing is he's, he's drawing out of Simon Peter an opportunity for Simon Peter to be thoroughly recovered from what had been the biggest failure of Simon Peter's spiritual life to this point. The question, do you love me more than these, for example, can be taken three different ways. Jesus could be asking, do you love me more than these guys love me? That's a fair read. I don't think it's accurate, but it's a fair read. Jesus could be asking, do you love me more than you love these guys? That's also a fair reading, but I don't think it's what's going on. Remember, Simon Peter had said, I'm I'm going back to fishing. And Jesus had granted him and his friends a remarkable 153 fish in the net. I think what Jesus is asking, do you love me more than you love this fishing life of yours? Do you love me? Word of God says Simon Peter was grieved when Jesus asked him that three times. Three times. Three times. Does that ring anybody, ring a bell for anybody in the life of Simon Peter? Three times? Jesus in the upper room in spite of all of Simon Peter's brash and bold affirmations. Hey, if everybody else bails on you, you can count on me. And Jesus told him three times before the sun comes up, you're gonna deny you even know me. Three times before the rooster announces the dawn. And then through the course of that long, dark night, the night before the crucifixion, Simon Peter did exactly that. And three times with increasing Vehemence, increasing tension. Simon Peter said, I don't know him, I don't know him, I don't know him. Three times. Now we know, just as an aside, according to 1 Corinthians 15, 5, that sometime after the resurrection, Jesus and Simon Peter have always already had a private conversation. We only barely know that conversation occurred. We do not know the heart of that conversation. But remember, Simon Peter's failure. Simon Peter's denial of Jesus three times was public. It didn't happen off in a corner somewhere. And so a gracious Lord makes this moment of his restoration also public. There are three things I see in this dialogue that is these three questions, these three answers, and these three directions to to tend the sheep and to take care of them. First, I see Simon Peter is looking his Lord in the eye and acknowledging his love three times, it gives him a chance to acknowledge his sin of failure. Repentance is powerful in the life of the believer. It's a gateway to following Christ for the unbeliever. To turn away from our sin, to despise our sin, to resolve that in the 
power of Christ, we want to do better. Repentance and faith are essential to salvation and they're the two sides of a very similar coin. Repentance turns away from sin. Faith trusts Jesus. And you will never repent until you have that faith. And you don't have that faith if you're unwilling to repent. So here, as Jesus draws out with this threefold question, is Simon Peter's opportunity to look his Lord in the eye and unload the guilt of his past mistake? I love the picture painted in Psalm 32, verses 3, 4, and 5. What it's like to carry sin that you've not dealt with versus the freedom that comes when you agree with the Lord about your sin. This is written by David a thousand years before in the wake of David's greatest catastrophic spiritual failure. King David wrote in Psalm 32, verses three, four, and five, for when I kept silent, that is when I did not deal with my sin, when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long for day and night, your hand, that is your convicting pressure, your hand was heavy upon me and my strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. Verse five, I acknowledged my sin to you and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. There is the acknowledgement of sin. We don't like doing that, do we? We know we've done wrong. But oh, the temptation is, you know what? If I don't bring it up, maybe I won't have to bring it up. Have you ever had known unconfessed sin in your life and, and then you try to pray about something else? I don't know how it is for you, but those are some of the deadest, coldest, bouncing off the ceilingest prayers I've ever prayed. It is as though the Lord is waiting for me to say, hey, Russell, that's all well and good. When are we gonna get serious? When are we gonna deal with the real matter that stands between us right now? That unkind word from a couple hours ago or that dumb deed that you and I both know you need to repent of. He's always right. Acknowledgement of sin. Second, affirmation of love. Affirmation of love. What an opportunity for Simon Peter to be reminded. And some of the words being used here indicate that the Lord knows the Lord's love for Simon Peter is superior to Simon Peter's love for the Lord. Many of you love Jesus. I came to faith in Christ as a nine-year, nearly, no, nine-year-old boy, nearly 10, when Jesus saved me by his grace through nothing found in me except for sin and need. So for a little more than 50 years, I've known him and loved him. And I love him a lot. And I want to know him and love him more. Can I tell you the truth? 
And if you've been walking with Jesus for a while, this truth won't shock you. I pray it doesn't offend you. Sometimes I fail in my love for him. Sometimes I do not love him as I ought. And I'm talking about in a given moment. I'll, I'll conduct myself in a way that is not consistent with what I know to be true. I'll, uh, I'll grab control for a moment, just long enough to say what I want to say or do what I want to do. My love for him is far from perfect, but his love for me has never faltered, has never and will never fail. Child of God, we've seen this over and over again in the Gospel of John. You are not saved because of your ongoing love for Jesus, though that's real in the heart of a person who's born again. You are not kept saved because of your love for Jesus. You are kept saved because of Jesus' love for you. Utterly dependable, utterly reliable. But here, Simon Peter, who's, who's coming off those three denials gets a chance to make three affirmations. Third thing, let her see, there's also the uh, assignment of growing responsibility. Simon Peter, feed my sheep. Tend my sheep, feed my lambs, feed my sheep. Simon Peter is going to become, in the just weeks ahead, the first apostolic but also pastoral leader of the first church on the day the church is born, the day of Pentecost, which is just a few weeks out from where we are right here in the Gospel of John. Simon Peter is going to stand in the temple at Jerusalem and preach a message, the founding message of the church, and 3,000 people that day are going to be born again, baptized, and added to the church. Little bit of a ways from, I don't know him, I don't know him, I don't know him. And Simon Peter is going to go on to have a multi-decade ministry of shepherding God's people. And what I love about that is we get to track Simon Peter in the book of Acts for the first decade or so of that ministry of his. He lived until the mid to late AD 60s. Church history tells us. And one church father, at least, tells the story of his, his death. We'll get to that in a moment in the Gospel of John. But late in life, he's going to write First and Second Peter. And after decades of effective ministry, I love 1 Peter 5, 1 through 4. I believe 1 Peter 5, 1 through 4 is the most direct charge in the New Testament for those who would shepherd God's people. Simon Peter writes in 30 years later or so, maybe a little more than 30 years later, he writes, so I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that's going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you. Not for shameful gain, but eagerly. Not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading 
crown of glory. Now, there's no way the old man who wrote that did not remember this conversation on the beach. Takeaway for you, maybe right now your walk with God is as sharp as it's ever been. Maybe right now the things that you attempt to do and specifically the things you attempt to do in his name are falling the way you wish they would. Maybe you are representing your king as a faithful ambassador everywhere you go and everything you say. That's good. That's wonderful. And I praise God for that for you. But maybe, just maybe, you're coming off a week that didn't go that way. You say, a week? <laughs> maybe you're coming off a month. Maybe it's just a season where well, it's just kind of stumbly. Can I encourage you? Give Jesus your failure. Where, where your own sin has gotten tangled up and helped contribute to that failure, get along with him and tell him about it. He knows about it anyway. Confess it to him. Pour it out to him. Let him relieve you of that sense of guilt. And if it's frustration with him, well, tell him about that too. Lord, I thought by now it would be different. I thought by now it'd be resolved. I thought by now, surely. And it's just not going the way I want it to go. Tell him that too. And trust him with it. Trust him with it. Which leads us to Roman numeral two. Trust Jesus with my future. If I'm following, I don't, know, I don't know all of where we're going. I don't know how fast we're supposed to get there and I don't know where the turns are. I can trust him. Verses 18 and 19, Jesus continues to speak to Simon Peter. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. Well, three things we see in trusting Jesus with our future. First, it's his plan. It's his plan. He's got the detailed map of what's next for you. Here with Simon Peter, it's not entirely pleasant. And there are those that will tell you that God's plan for you, that if you're in God's will for you, it'll always be generally pleasant. It will lead to greater, greater wealth and greater, greater health and greater, greater circumstantial happiness. That is hogwash. That's just not true. In fact, Jesus multiple times promises just the opposite. In this world, you will have trouble. Yes, we're going home to glory and he knows the way and he's leading his people there. There is no doubt of that. But between here and there, it can get rough. And here he explicitly promises Simon Peter, you're gonna get your arms stretched out and you're gonna be taken to a place you don't wanna go. Again, the church father Eusebius writes that Simon Peter in the late AD 60s under Emperor Nero was crucified in Rome. And at the very last, feeling himself not worthy of dying the way Jesus died, Simon Peter insisted and was granted to be crucified upside down. 
There was a gospel tract published a long time ago that began with the statement, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. While that may be true, that wonderful plan is not a day at the Magic Kingdom. His wonderful plan for you may have some distinctly unpleasant chapters. Follow him. Trust him. You're going to love where it leads. It may go through some stuff, but it's going through that stuff on the way to a blessed eternity you can never earn and will never deserve because of his grace. Because see, not only is it his plan, second, it's his purpose. His purpose. Verse 19, this he said to show by what kind of death he, Peter, was to glorify God. We say it all the time around here that God is always up to two things. His primary purpose in all things is his own glory and his secondary purpose is the good of his people as he understands that good and contributing to his glory. Your life is to glorify God. The purpose of all created things is to glorify God. That is the primary purpose for which the creator created. And Peter, not only is your life gonna glorify God, your death's gonna glorify me as well because that's my purpose that everything about you would bring glory to me. And in that instant, the witness of your death, after that instant, what I have to show you as you begin your eternity with me to glorify God. May we be aware and aligned and joyful in his purpose to gain glory for himself through the events of our lives. That's the big picture, folks. That's what thinking biblically about personal trial and even personal tragedy. Lord, I know this is for your glory, though I do not understand it. Show me your heart in my struggle. And help me remember that this is not my story that's being written here. It's your story that is being written for your glory, thank you that I have a part of it. His purpose. And then for us, let her see his priority. After saying this to him, he said, follow me. We know from Matthew chapter four that when Jesus first met Simon Peter and called him away from his nets and his fishing at the very beginning of Simon Peter's relationship with Jesus, Jesus's invitation to him was, follow me. Follow me and I'll make you a fisher of men. Follow me. And here at the end, as at the beginning, follow me. That's his priority for you. That you will begin that relationship if you've never begun it and will continue in it. Leaning into what he has said. Trusting where he's going obeying and sticking right to the bumper through the turns. Follow. Roman number three, trusting Jesus with my friends. Um, 
Lord, Lord, I, I get what you're up to in my life and, I'm, and I'm, I'm purposing to follow you, but Lord, I can't help but notice. It's sure harder for me than it, is, than it looks like it is for him. It's sure not going as well for me as it looks like it's going for her. I'm sure not getting the payoff in this life that they're getting. What about them? It's quite a natural question. But we're about to see, however, that question can veer out of bounds very quickly. Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them. This is John talking about himself. And as always, John, the author of the Gospel of John, goes to great pains not to use his own name. He saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them. The one who also had leaned back against him during supper and had said, Lord, who is it that is going to betray you? Well, when Peter saw him, him is John, the author of the Gospel of John, another of Jesus' disciples. When Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? Jesus said to him, if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. So the saying spread among the brothers that this disciple was not to die, yet Jesus did not say to him that he was not to die, but if it is my will that he remain till I come, what is that to you? John takes a moment and dispels what had apparently become a rumor that Jesus had promised him, John, immortality, which wasn't the case. Here, though, back on the beach that day, Simon Peter is motivated by several things. There's no doubt he's doing a little bit of deflecting. Okay, Lord, you're talking to me about my death and all that sort of stuff. What about that guy? I don't blame him. But it also is quite possible, letter A on your outline, that he's at least in part motivated by love. John and Peter had known each other for a long time. And Lord, you're, 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 in, a, you're in a frame of mind to say some things about what's ahead for me. What about my friend? We are to be concerned for one another's well-being. If love is an unconditional self-sacrificial commitment to the well-being of others, it implies that we're concerned about one another's well-being. It's not a bad thing that we want to we kind of keep up with one another. However, we can veer right out of our lane. Letter B, our lane. Number one under letter B, outside of Scripture, You are not entitled to know and you do not know God's direction for others. One of the things I frequently say in in counseling settings when someone is asking me to opine on a matter that is not specifically directed by Scripture. Oh, how many times have I said in those counseling conversations. You need to remember that I am not God the Holy Spirit and I am not your mother. And odds are I have no idea what God wants you to do. We can talk about what I would do in your shoes, but that's fraught with peril because I have a track record of some really, really bad decisions. You want to know what God wants you to do? Ask him. I'll go along for the ride. But we, we are, I tell you what, I know what they ought to do. I know what, I see what God is up to in their life. Oh, be careful, you do not. And one of the most powerful questions and one of the most powerful reminders is Jesus twice repeated in this passage, what is that to you? 
That's there for everybody who's tempted to make comparisons. It's there for everybody who's tempted to busybodiness. You are not the steward of God, the Holy Spirit's leadership of somebody else. It's very liberating. I love this set of verses from 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 9 through 12. 1 Thessalonians 4, 9 through 12. The church at Thessalonica had a reputation of being a very loving church. As Paul here writes, now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that indeed is what you're doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more. Take the next step. What's, what, how, do you, how do you get really good at loving one another? Listen to this. And to aspire to live quietly and mind your own affairs. Stay out of other people's business. Care enough to love. Do not care enough to either compare or meddle. Work with your own hands so that you may walk properly before others and be dependent on no one. It's a powerful thing. What is that? Lord, I don't, I don't get what you're up to in their life. What is that to you? Lord, I don't like that it seems that their, their payoff is a little bit better than mine in some ways. What is that to you? Lord, I struggle with, 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 with the fact that, that their struggles look easier than my struggles. What is that to you? You follow me. And finally, John's postscript. We, uh, we undertook our study of the Gospel of John beginning Easter Sunday of 2021. Now we come to John's sign-off and the end, thus, of our study of the Gospel of John. First, in verse 24, John's attestation. This is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things and who has written these things. And we know his testimony is true. Well, who's the we there? John wrote this somewhat later in life. All three of the other gospels were already circulating among the churches when God the Holy Spirit prompted the heart of the then quite elderly John to write his gospel. By then, some of the apostles had already died. And perhaps the we here is John and the remaining eyewitnesses. Also, it may include, by the time John writes this, he's living in Ephesus. And it, the we here may be John and the other elders of the church at Ephesus. At any rate, God the Holy Spirit is saying to us here in Fort Myers in 2022, we may know this is true. And then finally, John's awe just before the old apostle puts down his pen, he writes, now there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written? 
I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. Because Jesus did and does quite a lot. As we finish the Gospel of John, my encouragement to you is the same as John's encouragement reflecting Jesus' encouragement. Follow Jesus. If you've never done so, he paid the price for your sin debt on the cross and it's the only way you're ever gonna be right with God is by turning from your sin and trusting to the payment that he made on the cross, the proof of the empty tomb stands in testimony of that fact. Turn from your sin and trust Jesus. If you are a follower of Christ, but there's, well, let's face it, some space has opened up between him and you. And you're not trusting him like you once did for the speed, the turns. Close up on him. More time in his word, more seeking his will, more desire to be found faithful moment by moment as a follower of Christ. These things are written that you may believe and that believing you may have life in his name.